Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Sharon, you ready to do this? I'm ready. Are you ready, Jeremy? I'm always ready. You know, even when I don't have to be. Right? Uh, well, you ought to be ready. Where are we at, Jeremy? We're in Wilmington, North Carolina, at the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists meeting. Well, I'm glad you're oriented now. Back together again, right? I know. Yeah. That's good. So, yeah. And we have two of our favorites with us today. Absolutely. Nancy Marie and Sandy Ouellette, welcome. It's good to be here. It is. Glad we're here this weekend instead of last weekend with a big hurricane headed our way last weekend. We wouldn't have had the meeting last weekend, would we? Well, there's no damage here, so, but... That probably made us evacuate just for safety. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but it's, it's nice. It's good to see so many old friends and meet new ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's the fun part about these meetings. Yeah. And we're coming up on the pack event tonight. And yeah. And North Carolina knows how to do that right. That's right. Yeah, it's they're always a fun. fun. Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to be uh, building on our historical series today and... Sandy, why don't you tell us who we're going to be talking about today? Oh, we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Lank, and they called her Betty. And uh, as you'll see as we move through this, uh, she really established the foundation for what has become uh, the Boston Children's Hospital. Hmm. And um, she was just like a one-man show for years and years and years. But uh, a very interesting person, lived to be 97 years old. Wow. The vapors and were good That's to her. right. I, you know, I think we, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be evacuating all those uh, inhaled vapors because those ladies live forever. Yes, <laughs> they did. <laughs> yes, maybe, they it was, did. maybe it was good for you and we didn't understand and, and it. And doing children and all <laughs> yeah. those inhalation yeah. inductions, they really yeah. got the vapors. Well, who wants to tell us about the early life of Betty? I'll tell you about Betty Lank's early life. She was born January 4th, 1904, and she lived in Campola Bella Island, which was off the coast of New Brunswick in Canada. So she was not born in the United States. Campobello Island became famous later on because it became the summer home of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it was, he, it was there on that island that he contracted polio. Also, an interesting fact was that Betty's uncle taught Franklin to sell a boat when he was young. Hmm. Hmm. 
Uh, Betty was the first of nine children. Now, I don't think I want to be the first of nine children, although I probably would get my clothes first. Yeah, it'd be better than being the nine. Then they'd be handed down. Or the eight. I would get new clothes. Yeah, okay. So maybe it wouldn't be so bad to be one of nine. But she became passionate or began to become passionate about becoming a nurse at the end of World War II. I'm sorry, World War I. And Sandy will talk about World War II. And again, but by the end of the Second War, she really, really wanted to be not just a nurse, but she wanted to be a nurse anesthetist. And at that time, she was only 14 years old. Huh. Wow. Very interesting, too, that she's Canadian. And, you know, the founder of AANA, Agatha Hodgins, was also Canadian. And they live so close to the American border. And uh, we, you know, they, they both gave us a whole lot of gifts that we still enjoy today. So, um, and still they don't have nurse anesthetists to any extent in in Canada after all these years. Well, that's why they had to come here. That's right. That is correct. I was going to say, we've had a few infiltrate the U.S. now, haven't we? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, Sandy, tell us about her nursing and her anesthesia education. Well, she really became very passionate about a career in nursing at the end of World War One. And um, so she came to Boston in, um, in 19 and 23 and entered the School of Nursing at what was then the Newton Hospital at the age of 19. And remember in 1923, these were all on-the-job training nursing diploma programs. And remember that Agatha Hodgins also uh, came to the Boston area uh, years ago to further her education. And so as she was becoming that that nurse that she thought she wanted to be, she was given an option uh, to pursue public health or anesthesia. And she immediately thought anesthesia starts with an A. It looks a whole lot better than public health. So she so, became... Now, why, do we know why those were the two options? No, I, I really don't know. Um, Interesting. But they were the things that she was encouraged to do. But after she... She graduated from nursing. She worked as a private duty nurse in the Boston area uh, for a short time. And then she returned to Newton, that same hospital, for a three-month, now remember, three-month postgraduate course in anesthesia. And when she finished that three months, she was considered a nurse anesthetist. Three months. Three months. Wow. Yes. And um, so this was, you know, around the time of the Depression. And jobs were very scarce. And she could only find work as a relief nurse in New York City. So she was there for a while. And then she returned to Boston to work as a relief nurse at, uh, at Boston Children's Hospital. And so in December 1935, she was hired full-time as an anesthetist at Boston Children's Hospital. And that was after her three-month training, you know, see one, do one, teach one type anesthesia. And from the time she entered the Boston Children's Hospital, she continued her career there until her retirement in 1969. So her relief job lasted over three decades, (laughs) you know, (laughs) over 34 years. And interestingly enough, when she retired was the same year that I began my career in mm-hmm. anesthesia, and um, I'll be giving a presentation in Orlando uh, the first of next month, and it's um, professional gifts, 
and personal responsibilities. And yeah. it's gifts from people like Agatha Hodgins and Betty Lank and many others that paved the way and made it easier for us to expand our wings and fly compared to what they had to start with, with three months of education and no equipment and almost no drugs or anything. Wow. But uh, but anyway, she came and she settled in there and she really laid that foundation for Children's Hospital. That's great. Well, Nancy, why don't you tell us a little bit about her life as an anesthetist at Boston Children's Hospital and what that was like? Well, Betty was first acknowledged as the nurse's as the anesthetist for the hospital in 1936, as Sandy said. And soon after that, she became the chief nurse anesthetist, and she held that job for quite a few years. Well, actually, for a long, long time. At the time that she became chief nurse anesthetist, uh, the department consisted of five nurse anesthetists, one gas machine, which they shared throughout the hospital. And these same providers provided anesthesia at Boston's Children's Hospital until after World War II. So they were it for quite a while. Lank was sent to Yale Hospital for a week in 1939, and that was to study cyclopropane, which up until then was only given to adults. It was not given to children. So when she returned to Boston's Children's, Lank had a small mask and a container suitable for child constructed. And as we go on, you will see that she played a, an integral part in development of a lot of anesthetic uh, equipment for pediatric patients. She used the mask and the container to administer cyclopropane. And the first time she used it at Boston's Children, it was for a tracheal esophageal surgery. And this began the mon- monumental push for the use of cyclopropane as an anesthetic for children. So she basically introduced the use of cyclo in pediatric anesthesia. Before 1945, the anesthesia division was officially supervised by what was called the surgeon-in-chief. Now, as I mentioned, there was one anesthesia machine in the facility, and most of the anesthetics, therefore, had to be delivered by drop technique because there's no way all five of those nurse anesthetists were going to be using the same machine. So equipment for pediatrics usually consisted of either a large or small Yankor mask, a one simple gas machine, or what was called a Richardson bottle. And the underside of the mask, sometimes it was padded with gauze, and sometimes they pinned cloth on it. Mm-hmm. I guess with safety pins. You know, yeah. I have Miss Bunn's mm-hmm. ether masks, mm-hmm. and I, I I took the the gauze off. It still had the gauze mm-hmm. on it whenever she gave it to me. It was almost like stockinette mm-hmm. that she had on it, but I figured it yeah. was pretty disgusting. And you know, she back used then, it in the sixties, so you know, back then they didn't really have any pediatric mask, any mm-hmm. pediatric equipment, and so that's why they took the gauze and sort of made it made fit. it made yeah. it fit these oh. these little kids because uh, all they had is adult stuff and they didn't have much of that yeah yeah but they met well, they were made of metal mm-hmm. and so are. by using the gauze or the whatever padding they used you could make it fit the child by the more you put on the you know you would put right. more on for a small child versus an, an older child one of the things that they used though was one thing that i only heard about 
when I was in anesthesia school, and when I heard about it, I knew I might get out of nurse anesthesia school if I had to start using it. But it was for sedation, and it was tribromomethanol, which was called Avertin. Mm-hmm. And you gave it as a retention enema. That's oh why I would have to left children? Oh. Yes. yes. To children? Yes. Oh, my. Primarily children. Oh. Yeah. And you either used it alone or you combined it with morphine or nitrous oxide or ether, depending on how much. It was really designed for sedation, but you could certainly I guess do you knew they were it. asleep whenever they lost their enema contents. <laughs> was that how that worked? Well, it was very light, light, like a light, sunlight, light, sensitive. And it only had a shelf life of two weeks. So you had to either use it in a hurry or or throw it it away. Use it or lose it. That's right. But that was another thing that was used at that time. Uh, Endotracheal tubes were not commonly used, uh, just volatile anesthetic. And the primary volatile, obviously, was ether. And, um, of course, the things that you were using, like your cyclopropane and your ether, uh, were explosive. So Mm. it, it was a dangerous career at that point in time because, and there were, OR fires and that sort of thing that went on. Well, that's the reason why OR doors, most out. most most doors are are are, are so that you yeah, can you, you push out because if there's a fire and people are getting trampled, the doors are supposed to be pushed out. But that's not yeah. the way OR doors are. So you, you pull have them to open, open them oh, really? because if you had an explosion. You don't then want the door to you open. You don't want the door to open. Oh. That kept only the people in the room were supposed to die. That's not right. everybody else. Just the people oh. who were in that yeah. room. Well, that's nice. And that's of the reason why they still plugs, that way. They yeah. still do them that way. Yeah. Really? That well that's the reason why the plugs in operating rooms are up high beta. because the gases would oh, the fall gas would go low. And hmm. they were flammable. Except cyclo. And it's stratified everywhere. Huh. No, I'm sorry, ethylene. It's stratified everywhere. Wow. You know, I was talking to All you. the monitors had to be five feet up, too. That's how they started putting them on top of gas machines. Mm-hmm. And now they keep them there because it's convenient. But there really was a reason to put them there. Wow. I was talking to one of our graduates today, Judy, who graduated in 1965, which was a few years ahead of me. And uh, when she first went to her first job in rural North Carolina, they were still uh, dropping ether then really? in the mid-60s. And so I remember as a student, a couple of cases I did with ether because it was required right. to be able to sit for your certification exam. And the other thing was cyclopropane. I used cyclopropane, which was a very interesting drug, but I always was just real nervous about the explosion sure. risk of it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, Betty was remembered for her mask anesthesia, and she did it in the supine prone and sitting position. Uh, so... And anesthetists in, in this time had to really be experts in airway skills. They they really did. That was vital. Mm-hmm. Um, but she remembered one craniotomy that she did the anesthesia for in a child with a difficult airway. And she sat under the drapes holding a mask during the entire procedure. And she said a lot of mucus was dripping all over her and at one point in time in the anesthesia the child vomited while she was trying to maintain a tight mask fit 
And she's breathing in a lot of that <laughs> gas, too. So anyway, you're sitting under the child, you know, oh, my gosh. The only monitors at that time were stethoscopes and blood pressure cuffs. And the skill of responding to barely, barely perceptible changes in heart tones. That was critically, it was critical for safe anesthesia at that time. Well, other thing about Betty was often she would recover her children. And it was said that she would often sing to them when they were emerging. She evidently had a very soft voice and a very good singing voice. And she would sing lullabies to them when they were waking up. Hmm. But she was known as a kind and gentle person. And like I said, she would sing to her patients. But she remembered how frightened her little patients were because parents could only visit on the weekends. And so she had a lot of compassion for them. She also required a lot of nicknames. She was called by some Bessie, some Bess, and some Bet, mm-hmm. and some Betty. So, so she had answered pretty much anything. anything. <laughs> yeah. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. So, Sandy, what was her role in advancing uh, pediatric okay, anesthesia? Before we go there, uh, I remember, you know, now Betty was in the 30s, 40s, and so on, 50s. But when I started anesthesia and graduated in the 1970s and, and did a lot of cardiac anesthesia, we didn't have monitors for those real small infants either. And all we had was a blood pressure wow. and a, a precordial mm-hmm. or esophageal stethoscope. And then we had Dopplers that we could use. But, you know, at that time, the trained ear could tell so much about those changes in heart signs, mm-hmm. whether they're strong, whether they're getting weaker, you know, in terms of more anesthesia, less anesthesia. And we would always keep the little baby's hand bent toward us. And you put your finger you know in their little fist mm-hmm. and you know if they were getting tight you right. squeeze mm-hmm. and you know and all of that and so like nancy said it was a true art it would be very hard for people to do any of that today yes. i think because we have everything that we don't have to but it's and it's probably much safer um but they really had to be uh on the mark in terms of vigilance mm-hmm. well, we do too sure uh, but 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 monitoring and everything. Well, you had fewer aids, I guess you yeah, could say. Yeah, that's right. The that's other right. thing that I remember, too, we were talking about her sitting under the, the drapes. Before I went to anesthesia <laughs> Being drooled school, on. <laughs> but when I was working in the OR, prone cases in the neuro room, there was a little chair with no I legs on it. telling me that. That the CRNA sat under the patient that was prone in that chair. 
the entire time they were giving anesthesia in prone cases like laminectomies and that sort of thing. And also remember, too, that when they would bring little newborns down that had like myelomeningocils and they needed to close them, they would put a nasogastric tube in and put them to sleep with whiskey. Yep. Just do some of that. Wow. Okay, so what was her role at advancing pediatric anesthesia? Well, for 34 years, uh, Ms. Lank devoted her professional life to delivery and advancement of pediatric anesthesia at that institution. And following her education with cyclopropane at Yale, uh, as Nancy said, she returned home and demonstrated the first use of that in infants because people thought it could not be done. But she, like so many others that we've talked about before, like Alice McGall and Agatha Hodgins, she not only did this, but she went on to publish uh, her work in, uh, in articles. And one was Cyclopropane Anesthesia, a series of 150 cases, which was probably remarkable in that day because people didn't think it could be used in pediatrics. Um, she used low-flow techniques and, uh, and well-fitting masks to minimize any leakage around it. And the use of cyclopropane for infants um, uh, undergoing tetralogy fallot was proved feasible by her because nobody thought that that should be the anesthetic of choice at Children's Hospital. But as I've said in some of these other podcasts, I can understand why it worked probably good for these kids because cyclopropane was it like an inhaled ketamine? Mm-hmm. It sort of supported systemic vascular resistance and the sympathetic Breathing. nervous system mm-hmm. and everything. And so if you've got a child with a TET, uh, one of the things is a ventricular septal defect. And they desaturate when they get more right to left shunt. And so what you do is you increase systemic vascular resistance. If a child is running around playing and that happens, they squat. That increases systemic vascular resistance, and, um, and their oxygenation improves. Well, you can't do that in OR, so you increase it. And that cyclo did that. And I don't know if they knew hmm. that that was one of the reasons it was working so well, but it probably stopped the TET spells or certainly reduced them at that point. So she did that. And the other thing I found very interesting, she administered a successful anesthetic using a mask. Now, just think about this. While Dr. Robert Gross divided the first patent ductus arteriosus in 1938. And um, so this event marked the beginning of pediatric cardiac surgery and anesthesia. And she was the nestus of record for that first division of a patent ductus arteriosus. And this uh, is a spontaneously breathing right. open chest child. Open, mm-hmm. open chest. Open chest. Holy uh-huh. cow. Uh-huh. But later, she was asked to do the same procedure on a 200-pound adolescent for a, a person that had lived this long with a PDA. And she had a difficult airway. Again, Sharon, open chest in a lateral position with a 200-pounder. With a spontaneous uh-huh, airway. Uh-huh. And she also, in 1939, administered anesthesia for the first successful esophageal atresia uh, repair uh, for a surgeon named William Ladd. You have to remember, Sharon, there was no gas machine. Well, they had one. 
Well, I know, but you don't know that she was using it. (laughs) And these masks weren't made for ventilating. Right. So So they had to spontaneously breathe. Wow. Well, records show that the child was always in the forefront, and she administered anesthesia for more than 16,000 surgeries herself at um, at Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, so among the surgeries, she assisted with that of a Prince Alexander, who was son of Princess Lillian and King Leopold of Belgium. And she uh, was involved in that case in September, September 17th, 1957. And she continued a relationship with Princess Lillian uh, throughout her life. She was an innovator in equipment because she started off and they had no equipment. So I can see her always thinking, how could this be better? What do we need? And uh, she worked with engineers at the hospital to develop a variety of sizes of masks and blood pressure cuffs and everything you'd need for an infant all the way up to adolescence. She also helped uh, design the uh, with the forger company uh, to develop small rebreathing bags because they didn't have those to begin with. And if you look at her contributions beyond the operating room, she participated in the design and creation of the first recovery room at Boston Children's Hospital. Because when she started, that's why she stayed with them and helped them. They emerge. didn't have a recovery room. They didn't room. have a recovery room. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Robert Smith, and when Nancy and I grew up as students in anesthesia, he was known as the father of pediatric anesthesia. Uh, and, and he had a book, um, Anesthesia for Infants and Children, and that was the Bible. It was the only one back then. But he was brought uh, to Boston uh, in 1946 to chair that department. And um, that book is now in its seventh edition. And I often wondered how much of that book uh, that uh, Betty wrote, I imagined it was quite a lot of it. But he is a, was the father of pediatric anesthesia. And she didn't leave. She stayed right there. And she worked with him for 20 years and demonstrated the heritage of nurse anesthetists and physician anesthesiologists working cooperatively, or I like the word collaboratively, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, uh, for the benefit of patients in the field of of anesthesiology. Um, She's noted for taking extreme measures and caring for patients pre- and post-surgery when they didn't have PACU or recovery room. And she, as Nancy said, she would hum and sing to the children and just soothe them. Well respected by anesthesiologists and and uh, surgeons at Boston Children's Hospital. And um, in an article by um, on pediatric anesthesia, Dr. Smith called her, and I quote, an enterprising nurse anesthetist when he described the development of child-specific materials hmm. for anesthesia, because prior to that, uh, they, they had none. And then the chief of surgery at Boston Children's Hospital, his name was Dr. Harvey uh, Hendren, uh, in a publication referred to Lank as superb and cited her historic contribution as the anesthetist's own record for the first patent ductus um, 
repair. And, you know, so now we've got Betty Lang doing that. We had Olive Berger uh, doing the Blue Baby operations. Mm -hmm. And, again, if you look at most history books um, that are written by physicians, you'll never find these names. Isn't and that that's why well, we have to tell our story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Know, that we have to keep telling it. Well, it's just like that the the guy with the blue babies, the the black guy that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, his last name was Thomas, mm. lab technician. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. If he hadn't done, if he had not worked with all those dogs, and many of them died mm-hmm. until he figured out how to do it. Blaylock would have never been able, and Blaylock wouldn't go into the operation without him when they first started doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The unsung heroes or yeah. hidden figures. I yep, love that hidden movie. Hidden figures. I like that. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, Nancy, was there any involvement in ANA level by Betty? Yes, she was one of the early members of the AANA. It was called, of course, as you know, NANA then. Uh, she was a trustee, which at that time there were trustees which were replaced by regional directors in the future part of AANA. But she was a trustee from 1949 to 1951. But she was more instrumental in Massachusetts than she was on the national level, but she because she was very instrumental in organizing the first meeting of the Massachusetts Anesthesia Nurse um, Nurse Anesthetist Association, and they met in the Ether Dome in May of of 1940. And she also served as a secretary treasurer and also as a president of MANA. Uh, she served as secretary treasurer also of the New England Assembly of Nurse Anesthetists, which I think is still in existence, it is. isn't it? It is. Uh, where all the New England states They still meet. have meetings. Yeah. Hmm. And she was named Woman of the Year by the New England Assembly of Nurse uh, Anesthetists. Now, did either of you ever meet her? I did not, but I'm glad you asked that, Sharon, because uh, I was telling my husband, Dick, who most people know is also a CRNA, from Massachusetts area. He was from the North Shore, uh, grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, which is right outside of of Boston. The place where the witch witch hunts? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's where where he was born. And um, But anyway, he said, as a young anesthetist, he met Betty Lang. And he met her because his program director was a student of Betty Lang. So Betty Lang had taught... Mm the person anesthesia that became Dick's program director. And Dick said, and I had no idea when I met her or for years later who this woman actually (laughs) was and what she did. The first anesthetic for the first patent ductus, a cyclopropane for for tetralogy of fallot, esophageal. He said, I had no idea who this woman was right in his state who had done all of that. 
Wow. wow. Isn't that interesting? Do we know much about her private life at all? Did she marry? Mm-hmm. I would suspect not if she was re- uh, putting them to sleep and recovering them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, if you if you look back, like Agatha Hodges mm-hmm. and Betty Lang and Gertrude Fife and Helen Lamb was the only one that came through married a lot. And she, <laughs> and she married she, better each and every that's time. Right, that's right. Leave so it to she, an so anesthetist she, so she when did, you but, do um, it, do it well. You know, not, but she, uh, but most of them, well, many of them did not marry. I mm-hmm. mean, their life, you know, I just yeah. see that Tom Brady, you know, and he and his wife are filing for divorce, I guess. Because he seems won't like quit he's, playing football. Yeah, because yeah. he's married to football. Well, these women were married mm-hmm. to anesthesia. Yeah. They couldn't have done all the things they did and had much of a life outside it, yeah, really. that's true. And so that's, that's it's really remarkable. But, but, Sandy, at that time, you probably had to be. I mean, if you were a woman out in right. the workforce and accomplishing the things these women were, right. you had to be. They, married to that you couldn't have a husband who expected you to take care of the children and, and cook and, his food. and make his food and <laughs> well, do the you, things that were accepted at that time well look back at alice mcgall yeah. you know the mother of anesthesia and she married a surgeon and he thought her job was to come back with him mm-hmm. and raise his children Right. Well, the children, two of them, of the four, didn't like her too much to begin with, and that wasn't her thing. And yeah. so they never divorced, remember, and she ended up going back to Mayo, but never regained her notoriety that she had uh, prior to mm. to this. But you're you're absolutely right. It had to be all or nothing. Yeah. Well, Helen Voss even told our class one time that in the time that she decided to be a nurse and then a nurse anesthetist, she said you couldn't be married and have a career yeah, at that time. Exactly. She said it was not possible. So you had to make a choice. Yeah. Did you want to be a woman who had a career or a woman who had a family? Well, you know, I went to Watts Hospital School of Nursing. It was a diploma program. And you could not be married and be in that program. And that was in 19, uh, the late 60s. I wow. graduated from that program in 66, I think it was. And you could not get married. You were in your senior year. And if they found out you were married, you were discharged from the program. Wow. And there were some of my classmates and others before and after me that they did get married, but they kept it a secret. I mean, how could you not get married? We were surrounded by Duke and State and Carolina. All those cute guys. (laughs) Holy cow. But but anyway, can you imagine that now? You're, You're telling the student... They can't get married yeah. while you're in this program. When, mm. when I was in nursing school, you could not get married until you were a senior. We couldn't get married at wow. all. I but, got you know, called it, into the office when I married Pierce. But, you know, I mean, it was generally accepted that women got married a lot younger. But the problem was, is the career piece. That's that's where the issue right. came in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sandy, let's let's talk about her her laying place and at her death at this point okay um she went back home uh to new brunswick campobello island i bet i've never been there but i bet Mm -hmm. it's just gorgeous yeah and um you know of course agatha hodgins uh died at chatham massachusetts but they all had that same view of the water yeah something Mm -hmm. that i really love uh but she died on march 10th uh 2001 at age 97 in 2002, a plaque was dedicated in her memory in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative and Pain Management in Boston Children's 
which she helped establish. Well, she laid the foundation for all of it, actually. And on the plaque was inscribed the words, a kind and gentle anesthetist. To, in, in her memory, they closed with the marks that it's hoped that future anesthetists would be inspired to emulate the wonderful qualities of this kind and gentle anesthetist. And I will say, in my short view of Boston Children's Hospital, that has carried on. Our grandson, who's now 23 years of age, uh, was born with the transposition of the great vessels. And they lived in Virginia at the time. But they checked around, and the best place to go was Boston Children's Hospital at the time. So he had all of the repair work done there. Wow. You can look at him today. He's a picture of health. He had the Fontan procedure, mm-hmm. and he's doing really quite well. And most of all that work was done before he was 18 months, 24 months of age. And, you know, when I was doing pediatric uh, cardiac back in the 70s, we couldn't we couldn't operate on them until they were a certain size, you know, because they didn't have the equipment and everything. And um, so that's why they had many palliative procedures for the for these uh, children. But uh, but he's done really quite well and we're proud of him. And um, and so it's it's carried on the tradition. Now, there was an article published in the ANA journal about her. And I, I would like to say at this point that a lot of this information came from that article. And it was done by two CRNAs, Stacy Galvin and Janet Dewan. Uh, Janet Dewan, I've, I've come to know more recently, does incredible work in anesthesia in third world countries and, um, and supports a lot of people going to meetings and everything. She's just a wonderful person. And she's still up in that area. And also on that article was uh, a Mark Rockhoff. He's a, he's a physician, I assume, an anesthesiologist uh, from the Boston area, the Harvard system and all of that. But it is a very good article. And you can find more information there. And that's where most of this came from. And I want to give them credit uh, for that great article that they published on, um, on Betty Lang. Because like Sharon, you said you'd never heard of her, Mm-mm. and there's just not a lot uh, about her. And um, it should definitely be captured for what she did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, do you guys have any closing thoughts about Betty? Well, one thing that Betty said, and it's a quote from her, is be diligent and please do not be impersonal. That was her message to people that she taught hmm. uh, with pediatrics. Well, that would go along with the kind yes. and gentle part, yeah, wouldn't it? it would. And uh-huh. Sandy mentioned on Dr. Markov, one of the other things that he said about her was, it was hoped future clinicians would be inspired to emulate the wonderful qualities of the kind and gentle anesthetist. Oh, uh-huh. Very good. Very so well said. She was obviously known for her caring personality and well, lived a long life 97 yeah. years mm-hmm. old my you heavens know. as long as you've got your health you know that's okay right yeah, yeah. yeah. That's when right. you don't then so sandy nancy thank you guys as always always good always to a be pleasure here. And, and good to be together yeah here at, mm-hmm. in wilmington mm-hmm. at the yeah. north carolina meeting and, and can't wait for the party tonight that's Pack right party. Pack and parties. They are working on something that's going to be awesome. We're just going to drop some chum in the water right now. <laughs> um, we got some good stuff coming up from these two. Yep. You just wait. As always, they're always thinking. Always a wealth of knowledge and information. And 
Better things to come, right, Sandy? Yes, and Watchful Care, too. I don't know exactly when, but probably next year, mm-hmm. maybe the first of the year. Yeah. They will have the, uh, from 1990 uh, to right now, uh, published. And it's going to be a very interesting book. It's done, I think, in three sections. And so Watchful Care 1 has seven chapters, and this will be three sections in Watchful Care 2 that covers the period up until today. Huh. So that's going to be exciting. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. You almost forgot. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) If they like our show, Sharon, and they want to help us out, what can they do to help us? Uh, The best way to help us is to leave us a review, but make it... Positive. As we all know, there's way too much negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell all your friends about us. Share us on social media because we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on our way to number... Number one, just like we are in the CRNA community. And as always, you know, we appreciate our listeners helping us out. Um, You know, we couldn't do this without the listeners and the smart CRNAs out there like uh, Sandy and Nancy who bring this wealth of knowledge to us and then bring these topics to us about the historical series. And if there are other CRNAs who Mm -hmm. have topics or things that you think is important, please let us know. We'd love to have wonderful CRNAs doing good work on the show. That's what, that's how we find a lot of these topics. People let us know. And we appreciate that. Until next time. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. 
You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.